Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Wirecast. The Wirecast is brought to you by the Wisconsin International Review, a student-run foreign policy and international relations magazine, or The Wire for short. My name is Sam Aladef, Editor-in-Chief and Co-Founder of The Wire. I'm joined here today by Connor Heidi, an editor for The Wire and a senior studying Russian and political science. Today, in WSUM's production studio, hovering above East Campus Mall, we're discussing recent progress on the Korean Peninsula. There are a lot of important events over the past half century that we could get into to really put uh, the stage for this podcast. But for the purpose of just this discussion, I think it's important to get a few key points down and then we can really start the conversation. What do you say, Connor? Sounds good to me. Great. So uh, 2011, Kim uh, Jong-il dies and leaves the supreme leadership over to his son, Kim Jong-un who immediately begins an assassination spree of political leaders, including his uncle and his half-brother last year. Uh, And on top of that, he has expanded North Korea's nuclear program, testing more missiles, testing intercontinental intercontinental ballistic missiles, and uh, potentially, if given the right trajectory, could hit the United States with those missiles. And then, meanwhile, in South Korea, um, the previous president, Park, who took a much more hardline stance towards North Korea, had to resign over a corruption scandal. And a more liberal, left-leaning president, Moon Jae-in, came to power in South Korea and has since uh, changed the tone of South Korea's policy towards North Korea, adopting more of a positive uh, sunshine policy, is what they call it. And then as recently uh, as February of this year, in Pyeongchang, there was the Olympics, which we had a podcast on. And if you want to interest in that, there's a lot of background on what was going on at that time. But the interesting development there was that North Korea sent a delegation there. They sent a delegation of athletes and then a delegation of diplomats, including uh, Kim Jong-un's sister. Uh, the There were no serious event or negative events that happened at the Olympics. And it was seen as a success that these teams competed under unified flag, and uh, the Olympics went on went, went on without a hitch, without any violence, without any conflict. Fast forward to April of this year, uh, so only a couple weeks ago from when this will be released, and there was the first or the third inter-Korean summit, and the first time that a supreme leader, so anyone in the Kim family or any of the Kim leaders, stepped foot in South Korea when Kim Jong-un crossed into the South Korean portion of the demilitarized zone. Is that, is that, are we missing anything there that we need to cover? I think you got everything. Cool. So before we get into the serious policy debate, I want to mention two of the weirder stories that came out of this. So first, uh, it has been revealed that Kim Jong-un travels with his own personal toilet. Does he? Yeah. So apparently the uh, North Korean regime considers his, uh, you know, bowel movements to be st- like state secrets that they have to keep because they were contain information about his health. I guess that makes sense from the health perspective, but I guess it's just very odd to me for any country to consider their leaders' bowel movements to be state secrets. Uh, I, I don't know if any country's uh, espionage program is really hunting <laughs> down the... Did you get the bald moon of Kim Jong-un? I got it. Wow, it changed everything. Like, we got him now. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. I think uh, 
I think part of it could be that he's so concerned about assassination attempts that they know he has some health problem. They could maybe like sneak something into his food or something. I, I have no idea. That's really weird to me. Apparently, the state train car has one permanently installed. Interesting. So that they can make sure that it gets disposed of without anybody else noticing, I guess. Hmm. So that, that was one of the weird things. The other weird thing uh, was uh, this video has been circulating around of him in the official limousine yep. with a cadre of about 20 guys in full suits running alongside it, forming like a U around the back. I don't know what they're really going to do if someone's <laughs> going to attack your limousine. Like, yeah, those 20 guys really going to stop a rocket. Like, nailed it. Yeah, I've, I have no idea what their philosophy is behind that one. But for some reason, they think it's it's a necessary task. I don't know. You know what? Maybe they've got it in the right. We need to protect Donald Trump's ball movements. And he <laughs> needs a squad of security, secret service to surround his limousine. Yeah, apparently now. we like, don't know how to protect our yeah, president well. We're, we're behind the times, man. All right, all right. So let's get in, let's get into the policy. That's why that's why you came to the show, right? Uh, so the the first question that I think a lot of people are asking themselves, and it was really if you can get a good answer to this, it would solve a lot of these other questions we're going to ask over the course of this podcast. Is why now? So, I guess I've I've read a couple different reasons about why people think now. Um, there's of course the U.S. kind of narrative that. Uh, South Korea and the U.S.'s increased rhetoric and uh, maximum pressure against North Korea is really the reason for them finally giving in. Um, but I've also read some things about that is possibly the a downturn in the North Korean economy. But, I mean, that one does not necessarily make sense to me yeah. from the fact that the U.S. has been sanctioning the U.N. sanctions. Their economy historically underperforms. Um, I think the only real economic difference I could see was the fact that China's more involved and they're some I mean they're their number one trading partner obviously with like mm-hmm. it's like 90% of their imports um, but I, I really honestly think it has more to do with China's pressure than it does with the US and South Korea so that might be why now is because we've finally gotten China to get involved yeah so I mean, there are f- yeah, there are a few main theories about this. One is U.S. pressure that Donald Trump's rhetoric and uh, saber rattling has intimidating him to the point that he thinks his best option is to find a more peaceful and more direct way to reconcile this. Uh, another one is about the new administration in South Korea and his and Moon's new policy to approach the regime. I mean, is it, mostly Moon's Moon's um, diplomacy that got. North Korea to come to the Olympics. Absolutely. And then and then there's the economic argument, and you're right that China has become more uh, supportive of sanctions on North Korea and has become less interested in continuing to defend the regime and support the regime. Because, I mean, previously sanctions on North Korea, and I mean, this is still mostly the case, uh, were ineffective because most of what North Korea got came from China anyway. Yep. And the United States would then try to sanction the Chinese companies that were exporting stuff to North Korea. But the because of the nature of the Chinese economy, these companies could just reclassify with a different name, avoid all sanctions, and not have to worry about any of this stuff. So, uh, But recently, um, with the more nuclear tests, I think China has gotten more worried about North Korea and about their stability, or their interests at least. 
and has gotten more on board, not to the extent that I think the United States or anyone would really like, but they've gotten more on board. So, so I mean, there are a few of these things, but what's weird to me about this whole question is a lot of these events happened earlier. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, Donald Trump got elected in 2016. He assumed the presidency in January 2017. It's been over a year since then. There's no reason anything couldn't have happened in between. There's a lot of talk, and in that time, Kim uh, Kim Jong Un seemed like he was more interested in the combative rhetoric than in actually like finding any peaceful talks. Sure. Uh, and then, and then, I mean, Moon got elected in the middle of that year, so th- like that seems like a more likely, a more proximate cause. But he continued to test nuclear weapons in between. Maybe it's because there's been Moon has increased his diplomacy since being elected, and I would say that the combative nature was definitely against the U.S.'s initial rhetoric, and especially Trump and Kim Jong Un's Twitter war, um, mm-hmm. and them kind of flaming each other for a while, um, especially very recently. Um, Pyongyang just criticized what they called misleading claims um, that Mr. Trump's policy of maximum political pressure and the sanctions are uh, what drove North Korea to the negotiating table. Um, Mm -hmm. And what they're saying, this is an official from North Korea's foreign ministry, um, claiming or warning that the claims are a dangerous attempt to ruin a budding detente with the Korean peninsula after Kim summit late last month with uh, South Korean President Moon Jae-in. So something that I would say is possible they're using i mean this is slightly conspiracy um but not really i mean china definitely has influence in north korea and china also wants to assume the global leadership role um and lessen the u.s's influence so if they could use north korea or saying that like they could use north korea to say that it was not the u.s that had anything to do with their unification that was actually the south and they could bring the south into a more closer relationship with China or get China some way involved in a mediating position between the North and the South because uh, the U.S. had somehow offended the North and they would no longer go to the negotiating table or just some way to lessen U.S. influence in that region because I do not see North Korea having a hard flip on liking the U.S. Yeah, well, I mean, that that's like part of the curriculum. Yeah. For North Korean children, like you go to school, and one of the first things you're learning is how evil the United States empire is. Exactly. So, I mean, like as a part of that, I don't see them being able to even sell it to their own people that somehow the U.S. played a major role in them joining back if they do reunify North and South Korea. I don't see them being able to sell that narrative back. There's going to be something like I don't see this going without a hitch where this U.S. is in the mediating position, especially with someone at the helm of the U.S. who is as inflammatory and inconsistent as Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, I, I, can, I can see a lot of those points you're making. I think there's, there's a distinction, though, to make in that there, North Korea has the potential to talk out of both sides of their mouth. Oh, absolutely. Because, yeah. I mean, they can release these reports in English, and a very small portion of the country speaks English. And they, the ones that do, probably work for the government and probably will not say anything, even if they disagree with whatever the statement is making. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, but that still matters. There's still 
uh, propaganda that's going both ways into and out of North Korea. Uh, and that can have an influence about, you know, translating those official documents into Korean to get people to see what the regime is actually saying. Uh, but I, I, I totally get your point. I don't think that North Korea at all wants it to seem like the United States is the reason for anything. Which begs the question, do you think the United States is the reason for anything? Uh, I mean, in this scenario, um, I think there's a possibility and for sure, um, at least Republicans in the United States uh, believe that it was definitely the United States, definitely Donald Trump, um, as he has now been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize uh, <laughs> for his tireless work to bring peace to our world. That's a quote um, from the nomination. Um, Wait, so what exactly just happened, you're saying? So he, a group of 18 uh, Republican supporters in the House of Representatives sent a letter to the Nobel Committee urging it to consider Mr. Trump uh, for next year's award in recognition of, quote, his tireless work to bring peace to our world, specifically related to the unification of the Korean Peninsula, which okay. I think is hilarious because nothing's really happened yet. They haven't even had their summit between the U.S. and Korea. All Trump has really done is tweet a bunch. <laughs> yeah, I'll take this moment, though, to actually say, so, I mean, on this podcast, we don't give a lot of credit to Trump and what he's been doing. But I think I think he does deserve some credit here. Um, yes, he's just been tweeting. Yes, it, there's not a ton of substantive movement. But I mean, the, the fact that he that Kim came to the South Korean side of the border for the first time of him, his father or his grandfather to ever do that, that that like definitely absolutely means something. But do you think that's Trump or do you think that's South Korean diplomacy? Well, so so. I mean, that's, again, it's the question of why now, who deserves credit for this? And it's a hard question to answer because, I mean, no one's going to be transparent about why they actually made this decision, especially the hermit kingdom. Absolutely. Uh, but it, it, Trump didn't ruin it. Yeah, that's fair. And, I mean, I'm not saying that that's, like, the standard that we should uphold, but in this tense political situation, it's hard to know what what like other presidents would have done. Obama could have ruined this. Bush could have ruined this. Hillary could have ruined this by taking a different stance. Um, the fact that this is happening, that they're coming to the table is definitely a sign of something. Sure. But I, I mean, just a last brief thing on the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't think not ruining it qualifies you for a Nobel Peace Prize. Nobel Peace Prize is a bit of a stretch. I think there are a lot more qualified people out there who are doing sure. amazing work to actually bring substance. But I, I think that um, I think it's unfair to criticize Trump for anything that up to this point with North Korea, because as of right now, this is like where the United States wants to be. Yeah. I mean, and, it's difficult to come up with counterfactuals in terms of like, we don't know if Trump hadn't gone on his Twitter war with Kim Jong-un. Who knows? We wouldn't be where we are. Of course. Right. I mean, you we, never can, know. we can sit and argue counterfactuals and have a 50 hour long podcast. Exactly. But, there's no way to know. And the fact that we're here is a good thing. Uh, and it's hard to believe that President Trump's foreign policy didn't have anything to do with where we're at. I mean, the United States is the biggest player in foreign policy. It's impossible to think that anything happens in foreign policy that the United States doesn't have some influence on. Sure. Uh, that being said, I think it's very American-centric of anyone in the United States to think that we were a major driver of this change. Um, I mean, I, if, if you had to get me down to it, I think it'd be a combination of Moon 
uh, his new t- policy towards North Korea. Because I, I think prior to this, I don't think Park would have been interested in really sitting down for a summit. She doesn't want to uh, recognize the regime as a serious regime. Yeah. And that's what happens when you have the summit, right? Uh, and so that China, I think I think you're right about China's influence. I think that China's getting less interested. They're, they're losing their desire to continue to prop up this regime. Sure. Because it it, it's not as much of a benefit anymore compared to the cost. Absolutely. So I would actually say as a kind of why now, um, kind of leading into maybe what the Kim regime wants to get out of this, um, I think the why now, I mean, their economy not, hasn't really seen too much of a change from current sanctions or really any changes recently, um, but it's possible that they see a future trouble ahead or if they have, where you you previously really haven't had China starting to get on board at all with sanctions. So if they actually see China possibly getting more on board, we were saying that they don't see North Korea as a more benefit than a cost to them. Mm-hmm. They could be using this kind of lessening of their aggressiveness um, and possible reunification with the South, or at least better relations with the South at all, to, at the bare minimum, get China to back off sanctions at all, because then they've got their That's number one trading point. partner back. And then they can kind of go back to exactly kind of their normal operations with the caveat that then they might have better relations with the South. And so you see them... I mean, at the bare minimum, they have they've legitimized themselves more than I think this regime ever really has been because mm-hmm. now you actually have the North and the South talking in a non-combative way. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a fantastic point, especially about China, um, because what what that essentially implies is that from this point, South or North Korea can go a few different directions. Of if they really do want to get back into everybody's good grace. Uh, and, you know, respond to some of their economic problems. They have this opportunity, but they also have this opportunity to say to China that, or to appear at least to China, that they want to pacify themselves. And then they have that added benefit of the United States will reduce the pressure on China to reduce the, to uh, pressure North Korea, yep. which is all, which are all great things for the regime. Uh, but so let's, let's get into that question though about what does he want is this just about economics because i find that a little hard to believe um this is a regime that has essentially through propaganda through education through a lot of different means brainwashed almost their populace to the point that there are few defectors in the country and while there's growing there's some growing resentment there's such a strong uh police state and surveillance that happens between people that there's no real threat I don't think to this regime internally so improving the economy doesn't really help them in any way because I mean if you'd imagine that every regime just wants to continue to be the regime because that's beneficial to them uh, improving the economy doesn't help I think I think then what he wants and what the regime wants is more security sure um, I, I could imagine that the installation of the thermal high altitude air defense system, the THAAD system, uh, I think I think it helped. Yeah, I mean the security portion. I think that's definitely a persuasive argument from the fact that this regime. I mean, that's 
why they've previously said that they want the nuclear weapons is it maintains their security and no one's going to attack them if they have nukes um just because the cost would be too high and i think gaining legitimacy from these summits with the united states and with south korea and with china and you know all these different countries that previously they really haven't done anything like this i mean people call it the hermit kingdom but i think that's more and more they're branching out just to increase legitimacy because i think that helps prop up their regime because they do horrible things to their people like the brainwashing the police state like that stuff is not good their people are starving assassinations with uh anti-aircraft missile uh yeah guns. with the uh, artillery guns that's yeah. one of their ge- a couple of the generals got his blown uncle apart. yep um all that stuff is just absolutely awful and what nuclear weapons have done for north korea is changed the conversation away from human rights away from sanctions on their human rights um to being more wow look we're denuclearizing and that's such a positive that Mm -hmm. people are going to ignore all the other stuff and not bother them on that other stuff yeah i mean I i think the jury's still out on whether or not they are denuclearizing or whether or not they're even willing to, they're definitely not currently. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He said that they've stopped all nuclear testing, um, but we don't know if there's any any scenario in their mind where they're going to denuclearize. But I mean, bare minimum, look at how the media and the West is responding to it. Oh yeah. So I mean, so I think it could be less about cover for their human rights abuses because I mean, at this point, the world does not is not as concerned about human rights abuses in North Korea as they are about nuclear weapons in North Korea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if we cared enough about human rights abuses, there are a lot other places that there are a lot of, there's a lot of room for improvement. Sure. Um, so so I think, I think what the Kim regime wants is security, and security come in the form of recognition and legitimization of them as a nuclear state. Specifically. Interesting. So that the United States says, okay, fine. Yeah, you're a nuclear state. We will allow you to be a nuclear state. Um, assuming you then start to abide by certain prescriptions that nuclear states have to follow. Do you think it would be – I mean, do you really honestly think that's ever going to happen, that the U.S. would ever – be okay with them being a nuclear state i mean it wouldn't i don't even think it's necessarily just the u.s do you think like the world community as a whole would ever be okay with north korea having nuclear weapons i mean i i just worry about like japan and south korea because i don't see them unless you know north korea reaches out to japan and somehow gains good relations with japan and south korea I don't see either South Korea or Japan being happy with the U.S. Just kind of being like, yeah, that's that's fine. Have have your nuclear weapons. Yeah, well, I think it's a question of what will they be okay with and what do they have to be okay with. That's fair. Because, I mean, as of right now, North Korea has nuclear weapons. Yep. It's no longer a question of do they have them. We're still uncertain whether or not they can get them anywhere, at least anywhere off the peninsula or at the farthest Japan, the, those tests, but were skeptical. Um, so th- there's kind of a it, it's happened already type of emotion. I think I think more political commentators are starting to say, okay, 
th- this is the truth. We can try to encourage them to get there, but we have to start looking within the framework. And I think I agree with this, that you have to start looking within the framework of how do we make this a better situation given their interest in being nuclearized? Obviously, the goal should still be denuclearization. Obviously, it should be complete inspections, the elimination of all nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera. But I think then, given that pie in the sky, you have to figure out something that they'll actually agree to. Sure. And so the question that I'll pose to you is, how should the United States respond? What should we put on the bargaining table? How should we approach this summit, this projected summit that uh, has not yet happened? I mean... I guess from just a negotiating standpoint, I feel like it's difficult to negotiate with North Korea because they can just walk away at any point mm-hmm. if you say something. I mean, generally from a negotiation standpoint, you'd want to come in with some high bar and then have some lower thing that you're actually okay with and yeah. you work your way back. But I feel like if you come We've in- We've all had the art of the deal. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's the peak of persuasion. Um, if you- start off with just hard denuclearization, no other alternative. I feel like North Korea is just going to walk away. I feel like they're not, I mean, we're going to get nowhere like previous ones. So I guess the way you'd, I feel like you'd almost need to do the opposite is start at a lower bar and over the series of a couple of years, work your way up to that. Kind of what you're saying is like maybe a, kind of lure them in with oh, we'll, we'll let you let you be a nuclearized power but then over the couple of next years you're like oh maybe maybe you just lower your numbers oh maybe you just go to like energy program and slowly work them to that as you gain better relations kind of thing mm-hmm. um like a foot in the door psychology yeah to something it. something along those lines I, I feel like it's very premature for people to expect full denuclearization out of this first summit especially considering who we have negotiating. Yeah, I mean, so I think that was my point earlier about how we need to recognize or consider recognizing them as a nuclear state. Because when you go into, if you were to go in the stomach and say, the only thing we are here for is denuclearization, they're gonna be like, all right, why are you here then? Because they're not here for that. They, they might, there might be something that can happen in the long term. But I think the first step is to start developing diplomatic relations. So I'd say develop the dip- diplomatic relations, but like maybe not officially recognize them as a nuclear state. But yeah, just more of some nuance you can find. Yeah, I mean, wording. Just semantically, just more not kind of really bring that up, kind of thing, where it's like we we understand you have nukes, and we're just not going to talk about it right now. Like we're not gonna fight you on that, kind of establish the relations. But I don't think we should go as far as saying, like, yep, you are a nuclear power. Like, that's... Yeah. I don't yeah. I don't think they necessarily fall in the same grounds as, like, Russia, China, Great Britain, France, and the United States. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there's a middle ground you could strike of saying, like, okay, we know you have these, but we don't consider you to be a nuclear state somewhere along those lines. Absolutely. Um, but there are a few other elements that I want to touch on the United States action. So I think I think we're in agreement on uh, go in and try to start developing some form of diplomacy. Sure. Yeah. Um, on that note, I think th- there have been people who are saying that any talks with Kim and President Trump in the same room would be a unjust recognition of the legitimacy of the Kim regime. And frankly, I think that's ridiculous. 
I think I think that having this summit between the Americas, uh, um, the United States, and uh, North Korea is absolutely what should happen. And I think that um, I, I, I'm not too concerned about the the formalish legitimacy that that might convey that President Trump is meeting as opposed to a Secretary of State is meeting. That, like that doesn't make a huge difference in my mind. I'd agree with that, and I also say that to those people who say that, like, you know, we can't recognize their legitimacy, you're never going to change anything, man. You're never going to yeah. get to the point where you're going to affect human rights. You're never going to denuclearize them. Like, it's unfortunate, but to some extent, you do need to recognize their legitimacy. Um, and not even necessarily legitimacy in terms of, like, they're a good governance mm-hmm. or a good government kind of thing, but just more that they are a government and whether we like it or not, they are the power of North Korea. Like that's, that's just kind of a reality mm-hmm. the world needs to accept and move forward from that. Because if you don't, then you're not living in reality and you're going to get nothing done. Yeah. And I, I think Cuba is a good example of this, of the United States for a long time, not recognizing them as a government. And it's, I mean, it's frankly, has not been a successful policy, but that's an aside. Um, I think that, and I don't think it hurts. I don't think it really does much to change things in reality for President Trump to meet with Kim. I mean, there's like the diplomatic of like formality stuff, but when it comes down to it, like that's not what people care about. Absolutely. It's not going to change anything. Yep. The other question about what the U.S. should do is how we should handle our military base in South Korea. So that I mean that's something that, and the the Thad system too. That's something that China hates. Something that North Korea obviously hates. Um, but it's really valuable for our allies in South Korea and Japan. Um, and if South Korea decides that they don't want it there anymore because they want to start appeasing the Kim regime, uh, it still matters a lot for Japan, who does not have the best of relationship with South Korea, and it matters for the United States because that's our biggest foothold, one of our biggest footholds in the region, too. Yeah, and I, I honestly don't think that's a foothold that we should give up in any – like, I don't think that should be on the table uh, for negotiating, that the U.S. would willingly just give that up. Um, if that if that was going to be like – I think the only possibility I would see where that would be maybe something we would do um, is if they're like full denuclearization, we'll get rid of it, full transparency and like accountability of our government, you lo- like get rid of your base. I could see maybe um, we would consider it, but I think just beyond the North Korean situation, losing military bases in that region is so counterproductive to U.S. policy and U.S. success in the just Pacific and especially over in the East China Sea, South China Sea area. Um, So, I mean, I don't think they should give it up at all. I'll, I'll take a somewhat different stance on this. I, I think I agree that – so what I think is that the this base should be our big prize, that this base, giving up this base, should be the reward that we give the Kim regime for complete denuclearization. And you can then think about ways that we slowly draw down this base while they slowly denuclearize, denuclearize and allow – international observers to come in to observe every part of the country make it completely comprehensive make it impossible for them to hide anything but i think that's something that we should consider 
um, giving up. I think that the South Korean leadership, as it stands right now, is not totally in love with the base being there. They know it's valuable, and they to- they are very much on board with the United States as an ally. But I don't think that they are obsessed with that base staying. And I think the United States should recognize that part of it, too. So I agree with you in terms of the South Korea not necessarily liking it. Um, but I don't even necessarily think that should be like a willing prize we give. I think that should be like a last resort kind of thing. Um, and maybe we change like kind of what that base means for the United States in terms of it's maybe we have a smaller force, but we still maintain that base in some shape or form just because, I mean, like I really can't undersell the importance of our military presence abroad um, in terms of just our other policy goals. Yeah. So it might be a bit of a rhetorical difference between us, but I think that saying explicitly you allow for complete denuclearization and complete inspection of all your facilities at all times. I think we should say for that, we will completely end that base. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, The first is that that base really matters to North Korea. And that base specifically, we have bases in Japan, we have bases in the Philippines, we have bases in Australia, and a lot of places in the region. Granted, the South Korea one is important, especially for our uh, counter deterrence against China. But that base also matters a lot for North Korea. And if we want to have influence in the region, I think we can still have a large size in other places, maybe build another base somewhere. But it won't be on the Korean Peninsula, which I think matters a lot. So I, I think that we should put that on the table. I don't think that we should leave the region any more than that because I think we need to defend Japan. We need to defend South Korea still, not just against North Korea, but against other potential aggressors. And we do need to defend the South China Sea. It's a vitally important trade port, and I think just counterbalancing China in the region is something the United States should be doing. Absolutely. I w- so I just have a question for you then. Do you think that's something we should bring up or versus where I was saying that's like a last resort if we can find no other way to negotiate to that point, then we offer that up? Or is that kind of like a responsive, like they're like, there's nothing you could like say to convince us and we're like, oh, here's this. And then they're like, oh, well, maybe. Yeah. Um, I think it's a bit of a play by ear, but I think be prepared to explicitly say, we will do this one-to-one trade. Sure. You get, we will get rid of this base. You will get rid of all of your nuclear weapons, all of your missiles, gone. And I think, I think that having that in your pocket, prepared to use, is the right thing to do. So I would say, with the addition of, uh, not only do they get rid of them, missiles and everything, but we get to help you do it because I don't think that we should have it with. Um, kind of up in the air, like you just get rid of them and then China comes in, then China, you know, maybe at a later time just hands it back. It's that kind of thing, like where we have a guaranteed or a third-party international observer, something that's guaranteeing for us that what we want is actually happening. Yeah, no, absolutely. We need we need guaranteed proof. I think it'll be hard for the United States to be that prover um, just because of how the camera regime feels about the United States and the, the propaganda spread about it. I mean, absolutely. I'd... I, United States was yeah. more just kind of a, an example, but just a non, non-China. Yeah, no, it, it can't be China. It has to be at least the IAEA, if not someone else. Sure. Uh, okay, so the 
the kind of big question hanging over all of this, though, is should we even believe the Kim regime? They There have been a series of peace talks um, starting in the 90s. Um, this is the first time from Kim Jong-un, but with Kim Jong-il, there were a series of peace talks that looked like they were going to be progress. But um, there wasn't. They reneged on their deals, and, I mean, this is where we are. They used them more to get concessions that they ended up just ignoring their own side of the bargain, and the international observers did nothing. I mean, I guess it kind of goes a little back to what does North Korea want to get out of this? Um, and if you go off one of the things I was saying earlier about the economic standpoint, I mean, they've done this before. They get aggressive, and then they kind of back down a little bit, and people relax their sanctions they let some goods and mm-hmm. things flow back in the country so i mean should they be believed and it's difficult i tend to be a realist in terms of international relations um, sure so i would say no unless you can figure out a way that this would be somehow absolutely in their self-interest um but kind of as more just wanting to believe in people um maybe maybe they could see a better future um that's non-nuclear uh realistically though i would say no they shouldn't be believed but that doesn't mean that because we don't necessarily believe them that we shouldn't bother talking to them yeah i think i think that's you hit the right balance on things the united states shouldn't really believe them i i see no good reason to that being said it it means it doesn't mean that we shouldn't participate it shouldn't we shouldn't just ignore this opportunity because it could be real so you have to find this middle ground of going forward with these negotiations while also making sure they know that we aren't gonna just roll over once this treaty is signed and let you go back to doing whatever you were doing kind of hope for the best prepare for the worst kind of scenario yeah and make sure they know that we are most prepared for the worst and if the best happens, that's great for us because there's less that we have to do, too. Um, but there's just so much about the the country and the regime that is shrouded in secrecy that it makes it so difficult for us to really believe them. Because I, I, I think it's impossible to think that they don't know something we they know something that we don't know. And what is that? Uh, there have been reports that uh, some of the nuclear sites have collapsed because of seismic pressure, because of earthquakes caused by the nuclear testing. Uh, that could be that could mean a lot. It could mean very little. Um, there's still a lot of skepticism about those reports. But, th- I mean, that doesn't mean that there's something related to their nuclear program that we just don't know. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and then the other big question about this is where does the international context play in? So within, within a week, I think, uh, of us posting this, Trump's going to have to make a decision on the Iran nuclear deal. May 12th, I believe. Yeah. So that's pretty soon. And that's that matters a lot, I think. Because if you're Kim and you're looking at this deal, this is what the United States were going for. This is what sanctions are supposed to get is the Iran deal. So if President Trump uh, tears it up and reinstates sanctions unilaterally, I might add, I think it really throws a big wrench in any of our trustworthiness, let alone their trustworthiness. I would even give the like possible worst case scenario of if they pull out of or essentially destroy the Iran deal, um, 
I would I would conjecture that the U.S. Korean summit will not even happen because they don't see like they already don't like the U.S. They would just see the U.S. as so untrustworthy, especially on nuclear agreements, that it wouldn't be worth their time. And fickle from regime to regime. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a real concern that they're facing. Granted, it's it kind of goes back to like we don't really know what their intentions are. And it could be that they're doing this all for show, in which case the deal being torn up doesn't matter at all. Exactly. But if we really want to get substantive change, I think it's absolutely imperative that we have a working document for, I guess in Iran's case, it wasn't denuclearization, but preventing nuclearization. And I mean, again, we've, we've had a podcast on this and essentially our conversation from that is still relevant that there's no good reason to end the Iran deal. And I think that the negotiations with North Korea are a, another reason why it does, just doesn't make sense to do. Ending the Iran deal is a bad idea. <laughs> do not do it. Not that I think Donald Trump's listening, but like, maybe. That's our tagline from this episode. Um, and But then the other international question is, what, what message does... So let's say the United States goes in... We signed some form of peace treaty, maybe even end the Korean War, but the regime stays nuclear. What kind of message then does this send to other leaders that if you just kind of ignore the United States, suffer through a little bit of sanctions for a little while, granted you have a lifeline of another U.S. enemy, which you'll probably get in Russia or China, you can you can become a nuclear state and the United States will be forced to contend. So I would say that is entirely dependent on how open the U.S. is about them playing the long game, where we're talking about kind of getting your foot in the door with diplomacy and then working them back. If that's clear that that's what the U.S. is planning to do, but they're planning to do it in a non-military, like kind of more beneficial way to that country, Mm -hmm. I think countries actually be happier with the United States in terms of, wow, look at the United States. For once, they're not being super aggressive about something. They're actually willing to work with the country, and they're, it's going to put that country in a better situation. They're not just going – it's not going to be kind of an Iraq situation where they went in, they did whatever they wanted, and then they left, and then you have ISIS shows up in Syria and that region. It's like that kind of scenario where it's maybe – it's a possibility you kind of get what you're saying where they see the United States is weak, but I think there's a possibility that – countries could see the U.S. as someone who's willing to work in the long term. And I think that is incredibly beneficial because I know that countries right now find us, like you were saying, incredibly fickle regime to regime. So if the U.S. is putting, especially under someone like Donald Trump, kind of the idea in place that we're going to be a long-term country now, we're willing to do long-term plans, I think that could be a positive. I think there's the potential for that, but there's another side of that same coin. Because then if you are in Iraq or Libya or the next version of that, and you want to stay in power, you have a roadmap now. That's true. You have the the textbook on, okay, how do I keep my regime in power and have the United States accept it? And I mean, that that is a very real possibility with a nuclear North Korea, which which is the only real argument I've heard against the point I made before about how the United States really needs to accept what's on the ground of nucle- of North Korea being a nuclear state. 
so I think that would be the difference um, in terms of a Syria, Iraq kind of thing is they aren't nuclear. And that's really the only reason that I think we should have any allowances of kind of legitimizing a horrible regime because I do not think um, that the West and the United States should continue with this kind of silence on human rights issues, kind of just more broadly. I mean, you have things going on in China. You have just all around the world, like the European countries who will not allow the Dalai Lama in anymore because of pressure from China, stuff like that, where it's, I don't think we should allow this continued degradation of our, like the democratic liberal order of the world right now, because I think the more we allow these kind of, I mean, just horrendous regimes to exist and to stay in power, I think that subverts our current uh, order where the United States maintains their strong influence and dominance. Yeah, but I think your point brings up the incredibly difficult balance that you have to strike between these things because what you said of, I think the only place we should have an allowance is in nuclear regimes, essentially becomes a signal to all enemies of the United States to get nuclear. That is fair. Um, And like I don't think that that's the signal we should send. I don't think we should send the signal that we're okay with human rights abuses, but we got to find this middle ground. And I mean, any president has their work cut out for them dealing with that question. That's true. Um, and so, I mean, we'll bring it to our last question of what will happen next. I think the inter-Koreans, the U.S.-Korea summit will prove to be an incredibly, incredibly important event for finding that balance. I think this inter-Korean the U.S. summit uh, could absolutely be defining for like the next 10 years of just foreign policy in general, more broadly across the world. Yeah. And I mean, so there's a question of what the United States should expect. And I think I think we hit the point of uh, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Absolutely. And really think about the question of balancing the truth that or the reality that North Korea has nuclear weapons the reality that if we say, okay, we'll treat you differently because of nuclear weapons, it could send a signal. And the third point of the United States or the United States not wanting to allow human rights abuses to happen around the world. And for these regimes to consider the United States to be weaker or easier to manipulate um, through the through the assistance of China and Russia, especially in this moment of trying to counterbalance, especially China. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's kind of the what happens next goes hand in hand with uh, what should we expect. Um, I'm I'm just going to stick with the everyone should prepare for the worst, hope for the best uh, kind of thing. And I just really struggle with thinking that North Korea is serious about it. But there's yeah. only one way to find out and time will tell. That's true. So we'll wrap up this podcast. The Wirecast would like to thank WSUM, UW-Madison Student Radio. We would also like to state that the opinions expressed on the show do not reflect the views of WSUM, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. These opinions are only held by the guests of this show and not by The Wire, which takes no formal positions. This episode was produced by me and Connor Heidi. And The Wirecast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate us how you think we do. We love if you give us five stars. Share with a friend. It really means a lot. 
the student podcast has been so much fun to make and it's awesome to have people listening to it uh, if you have any feedback or want to get more involved with the wire email us at the wire at poli.wisc.edu and visit us online at thewire.wisc.edu thanks so much for listening